Open your Bibles, please, to Malachi chapter 1. <clears throat> On Monday night at the conference we were at, Larry and I were at, I was in, dinner, in the dinner line, and uh, as I came in, I looked over, and there's a, a guy that I went to school with. His name is Kent Morrison, and he's been a pastor in Montana. Yes, Montana. I knew I'd get <laughs> Whitefish. Whitefish, Montana. Uh, done a great job. He's been there 20 years or 25 years. Been there a while. And uh, I recognized him right away. And you know, we had name tags hanging around our neck. And uh, so, uh, but I recognized him and I said, Hi, Kent. How you doing? I put my hand out. And he put his hand out. And he's looking at my name tag. Oh, hi, Dave. And I said, I didn't let go of his hand. I said, come on, come on. And after a while, he finally remembered who I was. We spent four years, five years together at Western Baptist College. It seems like one of us had changed. <laughs> I, I, like, I like to think of it as growth. I'm much more mature than I was when I knew him. And part of our problems as human beings is our physical bodies change so slowly that we are oblivious to how we've changed, except for the handful of you that make us sick. Um, the rest of us change so slowly that when we look in the mirror, we don't look the same every day. Until we see a picture from years ago, like my kids look at a picture of me and say, you were anorexic. <laughs> well, that has never been true. As we listen to God speak to his people, uh, the people of Israel in Malachi 1, we're going to find them oblivious to where they have gotten to, their, to the reality of their life. And God is going to give them a dose of reality. Follow as I read Malachi 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have we loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's the passage we looked at last week and we understood that God comes and declares his love to them. And when they say, what do you mean you love us? He says, don't you remember I chose Jacob? Jacob was the father of the of the twelve heads of the tribes from which all of the people of Israel descended. He said, I chose him and I chose you to be my special people. And they had forgotten that. And so he goes on now in verse 6. You know, He has answered their question and now he starts to question them. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? 
You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. What we see here in verse 6 is this. Their relationship with God was to be characterized by honor and respect. God goes to the very elemental things of their relationship with him and he questions them. They had questioned his love, so now he says, Hey, let me ask you about your relationship to me. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. He's using an illustration from common day life. And in that day, of course, I mean, today we have sons who don't honor their fathers and we have servants who don't honor their masters or employees and employers, however you'd like to think of it. It's much more common in our country for a son to look his dad in the face and say, take a hike. But in that day, it did not happen. And he says, look, look around you. There's a son, he honors his father. There's a servant, he honors his master. He says, you should be honoring me. You should be reverencing me. We think, first of all, of God as their father. When God sent Moses to ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go from Egypt, he told Moses to say this, quote, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God thought of Israel as his son. He said, he is my son, so you let him go. That's what he said to Pharaoh. The word Israel means prince with God. And it's a name given to the man who was called Jacob by his parents. And he was called Jacob until it came to the point where he wrestled with God. If you remember that story, he prevailed upon God saying, give me a blessing. And God gave him a blessing. And he changed his name to Prince with God, Israel. And so when God uses the word Israel in the scripture, sometimes he's referring to Jacob as, as the head of the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes he's referring to the whole nation. And God said to Pharaoh, these people are my son, if you will. That's the relationship we have. Later in Exodus chapter 4, God called the entire nation his son after he called, he called Jacob alone. And then as the Ten Commandments were given, we hear this. Honor your father and your mother. What God is trying to get across to the people of Israel, his chosen people, people who came and worshipped him at the temple. These are not... These are not pagans. They're not unbelievers. They're not unfamiliar. He's saying, now look, you have a special place in my heart. You, I see you as my son. You know that I have declared this in public in the past that you are my son, and yet you don't honor me as a father. Turn with me to John chapter 3. I want to think with you about God as your father for a moment john chapter 3 you're you're familiar with verse 16 of course for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would 
believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But the first part of that chapter also talks about us entering into a relationship with God as Father. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus went right after it. He, he didn't have a small talk with Nicodemus. Nicodemus started doing some small talk, and he right after him. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's human birth, and spirit, that's spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent was put up on a pole as an object of faith in God. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Clearly referring to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ever have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you use the term born again, and I hope you do as a Christian, what you are understanding is this. When you come to see Christ on the cross, dying for our sins, and you put faith in that as God asks you to do, and you say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, when you do that, you are born again. You are not just physically born, but now you are spiritually born. And when that happens, God becomes your Father. God is not the Father of all mankind, except in the sense of original creation. He created Adam, so all people are descended from that. But God is the Father of those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. Uh, in John chapter 1, turn back there, John 1, 12. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. God is your Father if you have put Christ if you have put your faith in Christ. And as we would come back to Malachi, we would make the same observation that God did with the Israelites. You owe me the respect due to a father. Now, when we see today children disrespecting their father, do we look and say, oh, that's fine. Oh, that child is so much smarter than his father. Oh, that child understands everything so well. 
No, we look at that and say, that ungrateful, spoiled brat. He doesn't understand that that father, you know, was part of his conception, that that father uh, has helped care for him, that that father is trying to raise him. The child who does not respect his father is ungrateful, is ignorant. Your heavenly father loves you. He gave birth to you through the spirit of God. And we owe him, you owe him respect as father. As we come back to Malachi, we also understand that their relationship was to be characterized not only by a father and son, but as a servant and master. Now, in the Bible times, they, they owned slaves. They owned slaves. Uh, that's, that's really an abhorrent concept to us. I, I understand that. But it existed. And God uses this illustration and he says, if I am, if I am a master, where is my reverence? And he uses a particular phrase. He says, um, if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the word hosts in the Old Testament refers to the armies of heaven. We're all familiar with the fact that God has many angels. And sometimes they are referred to as the armies of heaven, as in when God decides to go to war with somebody, those are his soldiers, if you will. And so sometimes they're referred that way. And for God to talk to somebody and essentially say, I am the general of the armies of heaven. What's he trying to communicate? He's trying to say, don't mess with me. That's the Lunsford paraphrase. That's why I didn't write the Bible. He's saying, look, I'm the general of heaven. Uh, take me seriously. Take me seriously. This verse from Isaiah 42, 8 ought to be in your memory and it ought to be underlined in your Bible. I am the Lord, or I am Jehovah. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. There is no room for anyone to look God in the face and say, I'm going to do things my way. God says, I'm not sharing glory with anyone. I'm reading a book right now on biblical counseling, and he uses the phrase glory thief. A glory thief. Somebody who takes glory away from God and keeps it for themselves. God says, no, that's not going to happen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, and let's understand more fully why that should not happen in our lives and why we should respond to God as our master. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body, your body that you live in, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Read that again real slow. You do not own yourself. Verse 20. Why? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When I use this phrase that Christian is your, that God is your owner, Christian, God is your master, Many folks might say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the whole concept of slavery. The foundational concept of our country, our society in which we live, is self-determination. 
And uh, we, we hear the Declaration of Independence say that we are all created equal by our Maker and we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And because our Maker is invoked in that statement, we tend to think this is something from God. We tend to think that it's something kind of taken out of the Bible, that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and self-determination is our God-given right. The problem is, that's not a biblical concept. The natural result of living in this culture is we think we are actually free moral agents. We look at societies like, uh, well, like Iraq. Now, don't get me wrong what I'm going to say here. We look at Iraq or other societies where there are dictatorships, and we automatically say, just the fact that he's a dictator makes that wrong, and God wants to judge him. Show me in the Bible. <laughs> now, I'm not defending Saddam Hussein. But there's a concept that we have been totally perverted on here in our country, and that is that you have the right to self-determination. And friend, you don't. Not if you're a Christian. Who owns you? God. And why does he own you? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. He owns you because he paid a price for you. He paid a price for you. He bought your sin. He bought your debt of sin. Romans 6 verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be, read it out loud, slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. That's what belongs right here, our sentiment with this. Christ killed our sin nature, or it was killed with him, so that we should not be the slaves of sin. Until you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are not free. You are the slave of sin. Now, you may think you are a free moral agent, as in you may think, I can do anything I want within inside the law of the land or whatever. But the truth is, your will, your mind... Your life is being held captive by sin so that you are not truly free to do the things that you want to do. Otherwise, you'd keep those New Year's resolutions. You would treat your husband or wife with kindness and respect always. You would, and we could go on and on, but we read the newspaper around us and we say, all of these free moral agents sure are making some lousy choices in their life. And the problem is, they aren't making choices. Their will is enslaved to sin. Now, I understand that sinful people can do some good things. Now, here's what I mean. In other words, a person who is still an unbeliever can get up in the morning and make breakfast for their family or you know, do some decent things in the world. I understand that. But what God tells us is, when the opportunity for sin is presented, then we are pulled toward it. We are the slave of sin until we are set free by Christ. 
Ephesians 2.1 puts it this way, we are dead in trespasses and sins, totally overrun, totally controlled. Here's the deal God offers. You can be free from the control, decay, and ultimate peril in hell of sin. You can be free from that by putting your faith in Christ as Savior. But when you do that, God, he buys you out of the slave market. That's what the word redeemed means, to be bought back. God bought us out of the slave market. So now we are his slaves. We can have a home in heaven someday. We can have life in Christ. The problem in our mind is we don't understand that totally submitting ourselves to the will of the master is liberation. So how can that be liberation? It's because all of the stuff we're trying to get by self-determination, all of the needs we're trying to meet, God is going to take care of us in His way, in His time, and then someday He's going to take us to heaven. But He says, look, I am your master. There is no way to be free of the control, decay, and peril of sin without Christ. Listen to the statement of Jesus when he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you ever find God in the New Testament saying, Have a warm, fuzzy feeling for me? Do you ever find God saying, Come to church so you'll feel good? He says, Love me, obey me, and I will meet the needs of your heart. I will take care of you. 1 John 3.23, this is His commandment that you believe in the name of His Son. Malachi was talking to people who were part of God's chosen people. They were supposed to be relating to God as Father and Master, but they were not. And how do we see the fact that they were not relating to God as their Father and Master? Look back with me at Malachi 1, verse 6. He questions them. He says, why aren't you honoring me? Why aren't you revering me? And he directs this particularly to the priests who despise my name. Now, some, there might be a tem tendency to sit and say, oh, this is just for priests or pastors or you know, ministry professionals. No, it's not because of this. Well, before we go there, let, let's just consider this. There was a claim of innocence on the part of these people. There was a claim of innocence. They believed they were innocent, and, and so they're saying, what's the problem here? And God is questioning them. They were questioning, God is questioning them and saying, look, you're missing something here. It reminds me of Matthew 7, through 23, which says this, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord. They will say, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And he will say, away with you, I never knew you. I have a question for you. How could a person make it all the way to the judgment seat of Christ and stand there and he says, away with you, and they're going, what in the world? How could a person make it that far and not know whether they're with God or without God? I, I thought about that this week and I thought, boy, that's a, that's a scary thought. God is telling us that some people are going to step up to the plate at the great white throne judgment and say, hey, 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 come on. We're, we're, you know, you and me. And he's going to say no. How could that be? Seems to me it could be this. Because they failed 
to examine their lives by the standard of God's Word. They failed to examine their life by the standard of God's Word. I don't know if you've heard any of the studies that have been put out recently about cell phone use and the danger it is when you're driving your car. They, uh, you know, some of these studies purport to say that when, if you're talking on the phone, that you're not paying very good attention while you're driving. And I just don't believe that at all because, you know, just the fact that I've like driven by freeway exits when I intended to get off and, and that has nothing to do with the fact that I was talking on the cell phone when that happened. I think. I can't remember, really. Are you paying attention to your Christian life? Are you really paying attention? Do you know how you pay attention? You examine your life by the Word of God. That is the only way to know where you're at in your relationship with God. One commentator on this passage said this, These people that Malachi was talking to are not in open rebellion against God, nor do they deny His right to offerings, but they are laboring under the delusion that because they have brought an offering, they must be true to Him all along. In other words, they're saying, Hey, we're, we're doing the religious thing. What's the problem? It would be like somebody coming to church and, and, and walking out of the church and a guy on the sidewalk says, You're going to go to hell today. And he go, Wait a minute, I was just in church as though that's the standard of judgment rather than God's standard in His Word of our life and our heart. And not only did they claim innocence in this confrontation, but in doing so, they were arguing with God. I've called that the conceit of confrontation. Listen to what one commentator says. These are the answers of the self-righteous. The righteous do not defend themselves arrogantly when God criticizes Job illustrates the attitude of righteousness. Job is a righteous man, but he suffers the loss of wealth, family, and health. The bulk of the book is an account of his attempt to understand these reversals in the light of the wisdom of his friends. At last, God speaks, calling Job to account. God reminds him of his ignorance, taking several chapters to stress his own might and wisdom as contrasted with Job's weakness and ignorance. When it's over, Job does not answer with a self-righteous, but God... Instead, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Do you know how God confronts us today? He confronts us primarily through his word, but he also confronts us as people pick up the word and bring it to us. And we need to ask ourselves, are we going to be like the people of Malachi who said, Wait a minute. You have no right to be criticizing me. Or are we going to say, okay, let's see what God says. So they were criticized by God. And then we see who he focuses on, which is the priests. Now, why does he focus on the priests and the sacrifices? Because the priests were the only ones who could formally offer the sacrifice. The people would come to the temple with their animal and say, here is my offering, and then the priest would take it and actually offer the sacrifice. And so God directs his, his, his most intense criticism to the priest, but we have to understand that the priest and people are in this together. He's going to talk about deficient sacrifices, and that deficient sacrifice had to come from the people's hand to the priest. And so the people are not innocent in this. 
The priest bears a greater weight of responsibility, but not the singular weight of responsibility. Hosea 4.9 says, like people, like priests. One of the most challenging thoughts that I ever hear, and I hear it frequently at in books or seminars or whatever, is a church will never rise higher than its pastor. Believe me, I don't take that lightly. And, and, and that is a hard, a hard challenge to say, I have got to be moving ahead in the Lord. Isaiah 24.2 says, as with the people, as with the priests. And Warren Wiersbe commenting on this says, no ministry rises higher than its leadership. We are in this together. If I allow you to worship God in a substandard way, God's going to hold me accountable for that, but He's going to hold you accountable for it too. So He comes to the priests. So one of two things happened here. Either the priests led the way to corruption, or they caved in to the pressure of corruption. Either one is, is unacceptable, and either way God is going to criticize them. And so what is the obvious sin that shows they were not honoring God and they were not respecting God? Turn with me to Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22 gives the standard for bringing an offering to God. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament that God talks about the offerings. This is one of them. Leviticus 22, verse 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers of Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows. A vow was a promise made to God in return for a blessing asked. God, if you will do this, I will do that. He says, Anybody who offers a sacrifice for any of his vows or for his free will offering for which he offered to the Lord as a burnt offering... You shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. It shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make them an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord." Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, it, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land, nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. Now, we don't have time to look into this in depth, but here's the short answer when we ask, why is this so important to God? Well, it's so important because God is setting up the people of Israel for the future when Christ will come as the perfect Lamb of God. He was saying, look, this is, this is what the real sacrifice is going to be. And so the, the ritual or the picture sacrifices that, that look forward to it, they have to live up to the spirit of it. No animal was as perfect as Christ. That's what Hebrews tells us. Their blood could not take away sin. But God said they must be perfect 
in their, in their, in their appearance and so on to picture the perfect Christ who is coming. Now, as we come back to Malachi, what we need to understand is God had a clear standard. God was not capricious or ambiguous. He didn't, he didn't tell some people one thing and some people another and then not accept things. If we go back to the first sacrifice recorded in the Bible to Cain and Abel, one of them brought, you know, Cain brought the fruit, if you will, or the fruit of the field, and, and Abel brought an animal, and God rejected the fruit sacrifice. But even in that, he said, now look, you go back and get the right sacrifice, and I'll accept it. So God is not unfair or ambiguous. It was a very clear standard. And if you were to read all of the standards about sacrifice, you would find that God made allowance for poverty because they could bring a turtle dove. So God, God is not all about, hey, get your checkbook out and put lots of zeros on the end of it, otherwise I'm not going to accept it. No, he's saying, give me something that is genuine and good and pictures the perfect Christ. The clear principle that is enunciated in Malachi 1 is in verse 8. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Now think about this. This is not rocket science, is it, folks? What's the one reason you would offer a, a lame or a torn up animal or Instead of offering a perfect animal, what's the, what's the singular reason that could possibly be there? If it's not poverty, because you could give a turtle dove for poverty. If it's not poverty, what is it? Because you're cheap. You're saying, okay, i got to go offer a sacrifice. You know, Johnny, go out, there and, go out there and find that little lame thing, that little sickly calf. And they came and... You know, who knows? Maybe they built it up to the priest and said, Oh, it's the best we got. You know, times are tough now, Pastor Jones. And they gave it, and he said, Well, whatever, and he offered it. There can only be one reason to offer a substandard gift to God, and that is because you don't believe if you give the best that God can provide for you tomorrow and the next day. If I write a check with too many zeros, I won't have any. That really presupposes the fact that God cannot provide for you. And he, what he says here that's so poignant is he says, offer it to your governor. Offer it to your governor. When, when I read that, I think of, I, I, I think of uh, a lady in the, in the school that Sue worked at in Tuckwell. One day the governor was going to come visit. He's going to come to the Tuckwell School, who knows, you know, some education thing. And she loved this governor. It was Booth Gardner. It was a few years ago. And she bought a new dress. She's going to look good when the governor comes. Okay? You're laughing. You do the same thing. I was with some folks this week who told me a celebrity might visit their business. And I can guarantee you their shirt will be freshly pressed and clean. Okay? Of course, Governor Booth Gardner's schedule changed and he didn't come. And that lady was peeved because she bought a new dress. <laughs> humanly speaking, humanly speaking, if some important person came around, you'd put on the dog, as we say. You'd do it upright. We have, 
guests coming for a conference here at the end of March. We want to try and make this place as presentable as we can. When somebody comes to your house for dinner, in fact, dare I say, there aren't more people coming to your house for dinner because you have to clean the house every time they come. And he says to these folks, look, take your lame, limp, torn animal and go offer it to the governor. Say here. Well, you wouldn't do that to somebody you can see because number one, you'd be embarrassed. And number two, in that day, what it says here, offer it to the governor, it literally says, will he lift your face up? Do you know how they approached people of authority in that day? Like a king or a governor? They would come in, they would come in down like this, maybe even laying on the floor. With a king who was a, who was a, a complete authority, they would come in and lay on the floor and wait to see if he would say, okay, get up and let's talk. Or, I don't like him, let's just take his head off. So if you're going to come in and talk to the governor and you're bringing a gift so the governor will listen to you and you brought this lame, sorry-looking animal, well, you just wouldn't do it because you put yourself at risk. And what God is saying is, look, I'm the God of the universe. What are you giving me? When the offering bag goes by, is it the lame and the limp going in there? Or is it the best? King David said this in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Does it cost something? Our teacher on prayer this week, he talked about prayer that's only convenient and comfortable and token. He called it little prayer. He says, prayer should cost you something. Does it cost you anything to pray? Well, I pray when I'm driving to work. Okay, that's great. doesn't cost you a thing, does it? Because you've got nothing else to do with your mind the whole time. I'm not against praying while you drive to work, unless you close your eyes. <laughs> but here's the question. Does prayer cost you anything? Does it cost you any time? Does it cost you any effort? Uh, you know, uh, do you have to work at it at all? And is that work and effort and time what keeps you from really sacrificing to the Lord in prayer? Same thing with putting money in the plate, you know. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to Africa. Could I use that money I put in the offering today? Well, Pastor Dave, that'd just be foolish for a preacher not to give to the Lord a good gift. Well, am I any different than you before the Lord? I don't think so. I don't think so. The Butterball Company set up a Thanksgiving hotline to answer questions about cooking turkeys. One woman asked if she could use a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. You got one like that, don't you? The Butterball expert, how's that for a job title, it says, told her it would probably be safe if the freezer had been below zero the entire time. But the expert warned her that even if the turkey was safe to eat, the flavor would likely have deteriorated and wouldn't be worth eating. The woman said, that's what I thought. We'll give it to the church. <laughs> Does God get your most alert time of the day to speak with you through his word and for you to share your heart with him in prayer? Does he get your most alert? Is there a sacrifice there? 
Or does he get the dregs of the day as you drift off to sleep or hurry to work? Does God get a prayerful, generous gift from the top of your paycheck or the last nickels after the trinkets are bought? One of the things that I've been learning as I've been approaching this trip, I, you know, I, I, this is not common for me, but I, I've got a goal here. I want to have you know, some money to buy some trinkets to bring home. And so I'm, I'm constantly delaying spending. I, I don't need that. I don't need that. I, I'm going to need this, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm constantly doing that so I can be prepared. Do you ever do that toward your church giving? Do you ever say, you know what, it's so important to, to build this elevator or it's so important to, to send this stuff to Togo, or it's so important to support this missionary in Spain. It's so important that, that I don't really have to have this. Because you're really doing that for God. You're saying, God, I, I want to I sacrifice to you. I don't want to just do what is easy. Does God get your dedicated hard work in your service assignments, or does he get a lick and a promise and a sorry, I'll do it better next time? Jerry Ward's our new chairman of the trustees. And he's been working hard on our building already this week, last couple of weeks. And, and you know, he's going to be asking you for help. And that kind of work, like those guys put in yesterday, takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of truck time, and a lot of everything else. Is that the kind of hard work we're going to give the Lord? Or are we going to say, oh, it's too hard? David said, I won't sacrifice anything that doesn't cost me nothing does a $50 bill drop from your hand easily to buy a playoff ticket or a new piece of clothing but with difficulty into a missionary offering I'm a, I'm a clearance rack sale a buyer I'm I should yeah yeah I could tell you know there. when I go to JCPenney I look for that red and yellow tag clearance 70% off the last mark price that's how I make my fashion choices and you know what? I'll drop five bucks on a shirt just like that. I will. No big deal. Now you know what the thing is? I don't need that shirt, even though it is only five bucks. Ten bucks, I'm thinking about a little bit more. How many times do you go to a store and just, you drop five bucks here, you drop ten bucks there, that's ten bucks, that's nothing. And then the missionary offering comes by. Ooh, ten bucks, ooh. 20 bucks, whoa. See what I'm saying? Does your offering to God, whether it is money or time or effort at service or prayer or Bible reading, does it cost you? Or is it just a tip off the top? I, I, I got this quote from, from J. Vernon McGee, and it's just so poignant. One time this prominent businessman invited me out for an evening meal, and we had good fellowship. Afterward, he came with me to the church where I was preaching that night. The pastor of the church invited him up to the platform to lead in prayer. He's a wealthy man, let me tell you. And, and so he was invited up there to lead in prayer. I can just hear J. Vernon McGee saying that. I saw with my own eyes that this man who had given the waitress a $2 tip, now this book was written years ago, a $2 tip for our dinner put only $1 in the offering plate. I thought, my, he didn't even tip God generously tonight. When the Lord Jesus looked over the treasury, he saw how the rich gave, and they gave large sums. 
but he did not commend them for it because they kept so much more for themselves. But he saw the poor widow and those few copper coins which she dropped in there and compared to the wealth of the temple, very candidly, those were nothing. She gave nothing. But the Lord Jesus took those two copper coins, he kissed them into the gold of heaven, and he said she gave more than anybody else. God is our Father. God is our Master. He is the one that's going to provide your food tomorrow and the air you breathe. And he says, will you honor me as a Father? Will you reverence me as your Master? If you'd like to apply this message and work on it this week, I would challenge you to memorize Matthew 6.24. You probably already know most of it. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. Meditate on that and ask God to help you as you consider your sacrificial service to him in all areas of life, not just money. Ask God to let you see opportunities to give sacrificially to Him. And then, in regard to your prayer life specifically, may I challenge you? Plan to increase your prayer time. Plan to increase it. Our speaker this week said, if you don't make a commitment and a plan, it's just wishful thinking. You need to take that piece of paper called the sermon notes in your bulletin and say, Father, this week I am going to increase my prayer time by what? Whatever it is. Don't make some huge goal you can't keep. Make one you can keep and say, God, I have been deficient here. I'm going to make a goal in regard to my Bible reading. I'm going to make a goal in regard to my giving. God, help me to do this. And you make a commitment on paper and say, God, I'm going to step it up. I'm not going to disrespect you as my father. I'm not going to disrespect you as my master. Heavenly Father, you've been so good to us. Good to us as individuals. Good to us as a church. We just thank you and praise you for all of your blessings to us. We praise you for every person who's here today. We thank you that you're going to work in our lives as we honor and respect you by serving you sacrificially. Father, help us to do that this week. I pray in Christ's name, amen.